Good evening, everyone, and welcome to St. Paul's and to this evening's event on climate change and the common good, the cultural challenge, organized in partnership between the Diocese of London and St. Paul's Institute. I am Barbara Ridpath, director of the Institute. St. Paul's Institute organizes its efforts around the themes of equality, stewardship, and the common good. Since the Institute's foundation, within the concept of stewardship, we have been pursuing the issue of climate change, including speakers in this room, including Vice President Al Gore, and last year, upstairs, Christina Fugueras, and then this evening's event. On November 3rd, under the dome of the cathedral, we will be holding another event on this subject in the run-up to the Paris Climate Change Summit. So mark your calendars now. The Institute always tries to remind the audience at its events that they are agents of change and to help them leave empowered to make a difference. This evening's event represents an interesting experiment on our part in that direction. After the formal proceedings, you will see, and you may have seen as you walked in, that there is an exhibition of displays, exhibits, as well as two book signings that are intended to help you consider ways to engage and become part of the solution. We will be hosting a reception in the space outside the chapel at the same time, so hopefully you can browse and talk and have some refreshment as you do so. We hope it will inspire you. Before I introduce your chairman for the evening, I would very much like to thank the Worshipful Company of Educators for their support in this evening's event. As you can imagine, events in the cathedral use a lot of the cathedral's own resources, and we are grateful to those who support our work. Combining both resources and innovation this evening, and conscious that we want to keep our events open to all and free for all, so that you never are deterred by affordability in your ability to attend, we have decided to try the idea of taking a retiring collection when the event is over to help support our costs. If you are eligible to gift aid your contribution, there are envelopes for that purpose on your seats. Your support will permit the Institute to continue and to increase its programming. Uh, the other little housekeeping detail is if you have your mobile phone with you, however poorly it works in this space, we'd appreciate it if you'd turn it to off, or silent, or vibrate, but not ring. It is now my very great pleasure to introduce the Reverend Canon Professor Richard Burridge, Dean of King's College London, as your chairman for this evening. It is hard to imagine a better chairperson for this evening's event. Professor Burridge has held the position of Dean since 1994 and received a personal chair in Biblical Interpretation in 2008. He is also chair of the Church of England's Ethical Investment Advisory Group, and for those of you who don't know that organization, I encourage you to get to know it. You have his full biography in your program, but I cannot help but mention the fact that in 2013, Professor Burridge was awarded the Ratzinger Prize for Theology by Pope Francis in recognition of his work on the Gospels and is, thus far, the only non-Roman Catholic to receive the prize. Professor Burridge.
thank you very much indeed for those kind words, Barbara. And as she said, you can read all the biographies and the details on this very helpful leaflet and also details of the various uh, exhibitors about our cultural dimension to this, which will be happening later. Uh, I'm delighted and honoured to be asked to chair the proceedings today. One of the joys of being the Dean of Kings is that you discover your alumni in all sorts of places, such as the Canon Chancellor Mark Oakley here at St Paul's, and indeed uh, the Bishop of Salisbury is an alumnus and fellow of Kings. But I can't forbear to not to mention, having had an email from one of our other alumni and fellows this morning, uh, the, the Archbishop Emeritus of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, who's currently swanning it around with the Dalai Lama, if you're watching their video stream on writing, do contribute to their new book on joy. But as you know, Archbishop Desmond is a great campaigner on this issue, and he did send his regards to tonight and assure us of his prayers. And so I want to congratulate the Cathedral and the Diocese of London for their work together. And it's really good to see the way the Cathedral and the Cultural Institute and uh, the St. Paul's Institute is challenging us in so many ways at the moment on so many important issues, not least of which this issue of climate change because it can be seen in all sorts of numerous ways. It's a humanitarian or ecological crisis. It is, of course, a political hot potato, and Bishop Nick and I have been uh, trying to think about our way around things like that this afternoon from the point of view of trying to sort out the Church of England, which is not an easy task, I assure you. Um, it's sometimes seen as a conspiracy of scientists or of big business, or it's an obsession of passionate campaigners, and I've, I've been on leave for the last couple of months. I've come back to find an student occupation in the room next door to my office uh, at King's on this topic. So it's a huge host of things, and how that relates to our Christian life is crucial. It's about how we live our lives as human beings, how we impinge on the lives of each other, and how, really more importantly, how we care about the future generations, our children and our children's children, and so on. And because it's not as, in one sense, as simple an issue as some of the other kind of major ethical challenges that affect a particular sector. This affects everything, and therefore our life together in society, our cultural life together, is at the centre of this. Our values and how we live up to them, our obligations to ourselves and to the generations yet unborn, how we are to account for the legacy that's left behind us, the social mechanisms that we put together, how we have produced the world which we enjoy, and how large parts of the majority world are struggling to achieve those ends and those goals, and how what we might decide about climate change and energy might impact upon that. And so how we view that through the, the, our cultural life, through the arts, through all the various other ways in which we fulfill our lives is really very, very important. And hopefully in a way of overcoming what often seems like a collective denial that's trying to desperately hold back uh, the need for transformative action. As Barbara said, you've got the full biographies, uh, well, uh, mini-biographies at least, of our various speakers on your sheet. And it's with great pleasure I want to introduce our uh, keynote speaker, the Bishop of Salisbury, the Right Reverend Nicholas Holtham. Uh, the Right Reverend Nicholas Holtham has been Bishop of Salisbury since 2011, 
and is now the lead bishop for the Church of England on environmental affairs since 2014, and uh, taking over that work from the Bishop of London, and therefore is chairing our important environmental working group. Nick is no uh, stranger here to London. He was a vicar in the Isle of Dogs, and then for many years a vicar at St Martin in the Fields, where he initiated a major renewal £36 million project at St Martin in the, in the Fields. Perhaps even more important than that, of course, he was the parish priest next door to King's and would sometimes meet with the dean and try and keep us sane and, and work together. Um, he's a trustee of the National Churches Trust, a vice president of the Royal School of Church Music, an honorary fellow of the Guild of Church Musicians, and also chairs our committee for ministry among and with deaf people. Um, he is an ethicist originally. He taught ethics at Lincoln in the Theological College. His work in particular during a period of election of a BNP candidate in the Isle of Dogs was absolutely crucial. He's always been deeply committed, as you would expect from somebody at Smart in the Fields, both to the social implications and to the cultural implications of the Christian gospel and the need to prioritise the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. He's come straight to us today from a residential with his senior staff and the leaders of Salisbury Diocese where they've been grappling with the impact of the environment on what's going to happen in their diocese. And so please, locally, nationally, internationally, would you please welcome the Bishop of Salisbury. It's always quite unnerving to hear an introduction like that. I sort of recognised it. Um, I was asked to say something just by way of uh, beginning, um, which, which was fairly personal about how, how I come at this issue. And so I thought I'd um, begin with some pictures, and I'm terribly grateful to the people here for making this possible. Um, Salisbury Cathedral is a building which is nearly 800 years old, and it's just a sort of beautiful uh, uh, English Gothic, Gothic architecture, all of a piece. Um, we have one of the four original copies of Magna Carta, and of course um, Salisbury and the country, and indeed the world, is celebrating the 800th of, uh, anniversary of Magna Carta at the moment, and we've got an exhibition running in Salisbury uh, of um, Magna Carta 800, Spirit of justice, power of words. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the, Bar and the Barons forced bad King John to seal Magna Carta. Um, it, it didn't really last for very long. It was more a peace treaty. I think the Pope annulled it within about 10 weeks. But it established some really important principles about the way in which power is held to account through the rule of law and it established measures of, for just dealing. Um, no freeman shall be taken or imprisoned, but by lawful judgment of his peers, a sort of trial by jury, or by the law of the land. To no man will justice be sold, denied or deferred. And the freedom of the city of London uh, was enshrined, and the city was given responsibility for fair dealings, standard measures of wine, ale and corn, the London Quarter, used throughout the kingdom. There should be a standard width of dyed cloth, russet and haberjack, weights to be standardised similarly. All of that's really important in terms of wealth creation being supported by the rule of law and being undermined by injustice. It's a very clear principle that power is held to account through the rule of law. That includes kings, 
governments and fossil fuel companies. It was interesting to hear on the radio yesterday, or to hear it reported, I, I didn't hear it, a proposal for a green Magna Carta. Well, I was on the same track, and I think that's part of the discussion about how we hold power to account. The Diocese of Salisbury is an area of about 2,000 square miles in south-central England. It's most of Wiltshire, all of Dorset, 40% of Bournemouth and Poole. Poole harbours the lar second largest natural harbour in the world. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty and special scientific interest. Since childhood holidays, I've had an awareness not just of how lovely it is, but that historically in uh, Kimmeridge there, were, there was coal and there's oil. Uh, let's just go on one more. I can remember as a, a child on holiday in the Purbex discovering these nodding donkeys. Uh, and, uh, of course, what's really surprising is that this is the UK's largest onshore oil field. Uh, at its peak in the 1980s, 90s, um, producing 120,000 barrels per day. That's quite a serious operation. Uh, nowadays, it's a mature oil field uh, producing 20,000 barrels a day, and it's likely to continue to do so for another 20 years. It extends uh, out into the sea. There's horizontal drilling, um, innovative drilling mechanisms uh, on a scale that people simply aren't aware of. You can see it from the air, but actually from the ground, it's pretty impossible to, to see the oil field that is there. Uh, it's been done with a huge amount of uh, engagement with the local community, with the Dorset Wildlife Trust, the county council. The stakeholders have held the oil companies that have been involved to account. And, for example, the Dorset Wildlife Trust see this as a model of environmental sensitivity in such a, a special area. It's been exceptionally well done. But the extraction of oil in an environmentally sensitive way is yesterday's problem. Um, on this St. George's Day, the question is for us tonight, what is the dragon that we're trying to slay in this debate about uh, environmental care and particularly the impacts of climate change and how we address them? And I think it's a, really, it's a really difficult question to answer exactly what that dragon is and how we're going to tackle it in a way that is going to free us from what feels a very pressing and to some extent frightening prospect. Um, this is a heated debate. Oh, that's it. there are some interesting images that creep in here. Uh, it's an overheated debate. It's actually quite difficult to generate light. It's easier to generate more heat than light in this debate. We could get across each other quite dramatically, I think. Um, if we focus on, for example, divestment, 
or fracking. Then, then I think we could, come, we could have a really interesting uh, ding-dong. Um, but what I'd like to say up front is I think that they are the tools towards a low-carbon economy and that we could argue about them and the, and the use of them exactly what we do with them and, and how we approach it. And that is important, but I suspect it's more tactics than strategy, truthfully. And that what we need to do is to agree on where we're trying to get to and then to talk seriously about how we're trying to do it. Uh, and and that, that will be, uh, uh, that's a really important part of what we're about. Thanks. Actually, that, can, that, that one can stay there. And if we can just go to that one right at the end, that would be brilliant. So if we just go back to St. George and the dragon, and we'll try to work out what it is, it, which, what's the dragon we're trying to slay. Um, I went on a really good conference of Anglican bishops with a responsibility for the environment in their different provinces. And there were 17 of us from around the world. Uh, they included a bishop from the Philippines, from Fiji, as well as the Bishop of New York and Hong Kong. Uh, great diversity within the group. And we'd been doing conferencing uh, by video, and it had been pretty unsuccessful, truthfully. Um, but meeting face-to-face -face was transformative for us as a group, and it gave us a great deal of confidence in each other and energy. A bishop from Perth, uh, Bishop Tom Wilmot, who's the Bishop of the Goldfield in Western Australia, uh, he produced something which he described as a post-Hubble creation narrative. Here it is. The universe is unimaginably large birthed 13.7 billion years ago. Our solar system is so big we are never going to leave it. This little blue planet, Earth, our home, possesses the right combination of elements for carbon-based life forms. It has a liquid iron core which produces an electromagnetic shield against cosmic radiation. A habitable atmosphere produced by blue-green algae over a billion years ago, when our oceans were large, stagnant, acidic. Ponds. Blue-green algae took the carbon dioxide by photosynthesis out of the then-toxic atmosphere and sequestered it in what we now extract and burn as fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels releases this sequestered carbon back into the atmosphere, reversing the chemical process that originally made the planet conducive to life. We have changed the chemical composition of the planet from 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide, which ice cores samples demonstrate has been the ratio for 850,000 years from 280 parts per million of, of carbon dioxide to 400 parts per million in the last 150 years. We're currently pumping 90 million tonnes of CO2 into the air each day. The energy equivalent of that, the, the, the energy release of that, is equivalent to 400,000 Hiroshimas every day. The, the violence of that is, is so striking that you can... Well, I, I think it's the most vivid uh, image I've got of the violence done, being done uh, to God's creation. So I think the post 
Hubble creation narrative sets a scene in terms of where we are and what we're doing. Uh, and that uh, image uh, of uh, violence through the energy equivalent each day uh, is so breathtaking that it sort of highlights the problem. The science, economics and politics of this matter the scientific collective that is the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say that it is 95% certain that human activity is the main cause of current climate change. If you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm 95% sure, most of us would take the doctor's advice. The burning of fossil fuels is the biggest source of the problem. As CO2 increases, so does temperature. And although the increase has flattened, since 2002, we've had eight of the 10 hottest years on record. The warming of oceans has caused average humidity to increase by 4% in 50 years. And the consequence is greater floods and storms. Uh, at the conference I went to, there was a bishop from the Philippines, and he showed uh, a video of uh, one of the typhoons. Uh, there have been four typhoons that have hit the Philippines in, three, in the last three years with the strongest winds recorded on Earth. They've destroyed communities, killed thousands of people, destroyed the econ economic base. Uh, and Bishop uh, John uh, gave us all um, garlands of shells made by women on the beach, try trying to find ways of rebuilding their lives. Uh, and, and these uh, garlands of shells actually becoming rather like prayer beads for me in terms of how to pray this. Um, it, it, what, what's happening, the science is, is, is pretty much incontrovertible. Most people now accept that it's human activity that is causing climate change in the scale that we're facing it. Um, the economics is also pointing in the same direction. It's nine years since the Stern Review estimated that climate change impacts will be equivalent to reducing gross domestic product globally by 5 to 20% per year. Uh, the Governor of the Bank of England and the World Bank have underlined the problem recently. Uh, the UN report that between 2006 and 2010, 179 different countries saw natural hazards become disasters. Um, even if warming is limited to the globally agreed target of two degrees, the costs of adapting to climate change in developing countries could climb as high as $150 billion per year by 2005 to $250 to $500 billion per year by 2050. This is having a huge impact on our, on our sense of well-being, our common wealth. Uh, and no wonder the uh, aid agencies are saying climate change is their top priority because it, this undermines anything else they're doing in terms of economic development. And the politics, well, it's a bit odd, isn't it, that climate change and the preparations for the UN climate change talks in Paris at the end of the year haven't had a greater uh, presence within uh, the political debate uh, in preparation for our general election. But I think politicians are waking up to the significance of this. 
Perhaps we all are. Um, but it's proving difficult for them to act collectively. Uh, to that extent, full marks to David Cameron, Ed Miliband, Nick Clegg for signing an agreement which pledged them to work together across party lines to address the challenge of climate change and to commit to agree UK carbon budgets in accordance with the Climate Change Act and accelerate the transition to a low-carbon economy and end the use of unbated coal in power generation. They're headlines, but they're important headlines, and it's significant to have cross-party political agreement. And yet, globally, there are 1,200 coal-fired power stations commissioned to be built, mostly in China and India, but not only. So the science, the economics, the politics all point in the same direction. But we lack global agreements about the way forward. There's a political problem, but I think there's a much deeper problem than that. At root, I think, this is a spiritual problem. Well, you, that's what you'd expect a bishop to say in a cathedral. But at root, I think this is a spiritual problem. And I think it's profound. Um, the Jesuit, Jerry Hughes, who wrote one of the best-known books on um, spirituality, really, in the latter part of the 20th century, God of Surprises. Um, Jerry died in November, uh, aged, I think he was 90. He produced a book just a few weeks before he died, which is called Cry of Wonder, uh, and in it, he, he said that we're facing a, a crisis. He said, we have seen wonderful technical development, but we have become unhinged. We've lost the link between the words we use and what we actually do. It faces us with annihilation. Um, actually, Christianity's got good resources on this. That's pretty close to what St. Paul said in the Epistle to the Romans. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I, do not, which I would not, that I do. What we say we want and what we do don't match. And that's a spiritual crisis. Uh, Jerry Hughes is saying that we know about that, we know about it personally, we know about it corporately. And he encourages us to explore the mystery of our own human experience on the journey inwards. Attending to our inner conflict can reveal to us a vision of the transformation into which we're being invited uh, in all that we're experiencing in every moment of our existence. It's, I think what he's saying is terribly like Carl Jung, who said that the person who looks outside dreams, whilst the person who looks inside awakens. I think I could see that on your faces when I uh, told about the cross-party um, ag agreements. And I could see you sitting there saying, yeah, so what's going to happen? And, and that sense in which there's a gap between what we say we want and what we're doing. And that's why the process of engagement and accountability, holding power to account in the way that Magna Carta established some principles which we can use in this debate, it is really important. George Marshall's been um, really interesting in, in this debate in trying to find uh, ways in which uh, language in which energises us uh, rather than uh, leaves us looking soporific uh, and as though we can't act, as though we're overwhelmed by it, that the dragon's going to get us and we can't do anything about it. 
Um, uh, George Marshall recently has been talking about, uh, with some interest in the religious outlook on life and the way in which religious people might be part of the solution. We might, we might have the sorts of resources that would be really useful uh, in this debate. Um, to me, as a former vicar of St. Martin of Fields, it sounded curiously like Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? We've got a problem. We're addicted to something. We've got a lifestyle which, frankly, we've got so used to, we're going to find it difficult to challenge. And anyway, all the cards are stacked in a particular kind of way because of the way in which the market's been created and is supported. Uh, and what AA say is that you've got to hit rock bottom before you want to change, before you, be, before you realize, <laughs> I can't get any lower than this. Um, and you've got to believe in a power greater than yourself because you won't find the energy just within yourself. You've got to have something that you believe in which is greater than you in terms of a power that's going to strengthen you in order to respond and call you out of the depths that you have entered into, that we have entered into. And then they identify 12 steps to recovery. And I think that's the bit where we're trying to work out how to slay the dragon. What would be the equivalent of the 12 steps that we need to engage with? I haven't got all 12. I've got a few hints, I think, which are broadly out of Christian theology. I think we need to develop a much more engaged, interesting, affirming theology of creation where we give thanks to God for the gift of creation uh, that we have been given. And that's absolutely core to Christian belief in God, the creator of everything. And for Anglicans, one of the five marks of mission that was developed in the 1980s uh, is absolutely there to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. We need to put a lot more work into this in our churches and in our public discussion of the importance of theology about what it means for us to be creatures in God's creation, trying to build a relationship which is at one with God and with one another and which cares for the earth in a way that gives thanks for everything and respects the integrity of creation. There's some interesting work gone on. Patriarch Bartholomew, the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople, has been outstanding in developing a theology of creation. The Swedish Lutheran bishops have written a, a letter on climate change. It's outstanding. It's not terribly long and it's available on the web. We're expecting a papal encyclical in July, which I think will have a very big impact on the worldwide discussion of this using a theology of creation which is going to help strengthen our understanding, our give us resources and a way of looking at things which might help us. So we've got a theology of creation which we can develop and there's a sense in which we have misused it, squandered it, abused it, and we've got it wrong. Uh, that sense of, gosh, it's an old-fashioned Christian thing, this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. One of the things I was doing with my... Um, senior team uh, this morning was to ask them what they thought the sin was. What's, what, I, didn't, I didn't have the picture of the dragon. I wish I had for St. George's. But actually, what is it we're trying to say? What's the sin it, that, that we've, we've committed in relation to our care of the earth and stewardship of creation? Um, we came up with a variety of examples. Um, but for example, um, wealth creation's good. Actually, wealth creation, I think, is a duty engaging with creation. But we have a duty to tread more lightly 
on the earth. We can no longer go on defining our success as human beings in terms of consumption. The, you know, I'm more successful if I'm able to consume more. There are only so many meals, only so many holidays, only so much expenditure. We can't go on saying that to be human is to consume. I shop, therefore I am. Tesco ergo sum. Um, the sin, this morning, the, 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 the clergy I was with talked about self-centeredness, that self-absorption being the sin that needs slaying. Um, but actually, we very quickly got into a discussion about why, it's so, why we're finding it so difficult to love God and love our neighbour as ourselves, and it's because actually quite a, there's quite a strong sense of low self-esteem, or we can't do anything. What difference can I make? I'm only little me. Um, so that sense of self-centeredness might not be as simple as you know, me, me, me. It might actually be a very low sense of self that makes it more difficult for us to build that right relationship with God, others, and the wide creation. Thanksgiving for creation, creation theolo a theology of creation, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, actually taking the trouble to try to name the dragon or the dragons. Uh, Jesus summarized the law, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Well, actually, the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan is a story of the neighbor being beyond limit. And what's even more striking about that story is it's the outsider who teaches us the meaning of the law. It's the Samaritan. And for a Jew in Jesus' day, uh, uh, the, the phrase good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron. Um, it would have been a bit like saying there's such a thing as a good Chelsea supporter. Right? It doesn't go together. And that's, but, but that person becomes the person who shows us the meaning of, of the law. One of the things that the church has as a strength is that we have a commitment to care for the poor. Um, all of the church's development agencies have climate justice as the top priority. And in the conference of bishops that I was at, one of the things that we recognized in our conversation was the importance of listening to the voices of the poor, of indigenous people, of women, of people who often are on the edge of the political discourse. And there's a real strength that the church is local everywhere. Actually, we have a network of relationships which makes it possible to hear the experience of other people. At the conference I was at, the Bishop of Edmonton, Bishop Jane, this is in Alberta, Canada, not London, Sorry, that's a Church of England joke, but the thoughts of a, fem a female Bishop of Edmonton is so inconceivable. It's, a, it's, de you know, it's delightful. The Bishop of Edmonton, Jane, lives in a region heavily dependent on oil for, for the success of the economy. And we agreed, all of us agreed, that our politicians need to be strengthened so that binding, fair, ambitious and accountable agreements can be made at the UN Climate Summit in Paris at the end of the year. Bishop Eleanor from Swaziland, she said, my country's got really rich deposits of coal. So what you're saying is that you can have the benefits of burning coal in your economic development, but you're telling us we can't, we've got to leave this stuff in the ground. Is that right? The Bishop of Fiji, Appy, said, 
it's really important that climate justice and economic justice go together. Now, for me, th th those three different stories from three very different parts of the world, um, the church local everywhere, but actually having very different perceptions from an, a, a diocese and a region very dependent on the oil industry to a developing country with rich resources of deposits of coal that we're saying you've got to keep in the ground, and a bishop in the Pacific Islands saying the sea is rising and my people are going under. How do we hold that conversation in relation to climate justice? The Bishop of Namibia asked, when we speak of God's justice, whose justice are we talking about? I've been going around the Diocese of Salisbury visiting each deanery, and I've been addressing issues with local groups about the life of the church uh, and engaging the process of renewing hope. What we've discovered is that uh, when I ask what renews hope, people on the whole tell quite soft stories about how nice it is to have a full church at Easter. Um, and every deanery told a really tough story about where they'd faced something that was difficult and they did it well and everybody felt renewed by the process. Um, a, a, a death, a difficult funeral, um, something in the community where they'd fallen out and there had been a process of, uh, uh, of argument and then uh, real engagement and reconciliation. Actually, we have a track record of facing difficult things well in such a way that our hope uh, is renewed. So what can we do? What can we do? We need our best brains to develop technology based on renewable fuels. Uh, we need to adapt and change our lifestyles. We need to encourage our government to make international agreements. We need to use the international networks in order to do this. The consumerist period is over. It's not a competition about who can consume most and it's not just about me. We're moving to a period in which we will have to live more lightly on the earth for the common good. The conference came up with a report which was based on I think quite simple Christian theology. It was based on a celebration of the Eucharist. It was a theology of creation which recognized the need of our redemption, that we've made a mess of it, and that we need to turn around repenting for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, actually, churches have engaged in uh, a variety of exercises like shrinking the carbon footprint, uh, uh, of eco-congregations, of living churchyards where a varied ecology is being developed within the local churchyard, which, small in itself, if you add them all together, is the size of a national park. Uh, no change for Christians takes place without prayer. Prayer and fasting once a month. What do you want? What are you asking God for? What do you really want? And how can we support our politicians going to Paris for the talks uh, for the UN Climate Change Summit? Um, there'll be pilgrimages from Canterbury walking, from London cycling, from Blackburn by electric car. Prayer groups over the country supporting that because environmental care and climate justice go together and we need to take care because the world is our host.
Thank you very much indeed, Bishop Nick. We're now going to hear three uh, positions from uh, Stephen Howard, from Lawrence Brum, and from Baroness Worthington. Their biographies are there in the sheet, but I will say a brief word to introduce them. Stephen Howard will speak first. He's the Chief Executive of Business in the Community, which I think was an initiative initially in partnership with the Prince of Wales, trying to bring the business into its impact upon the community. And Stephen's held a number of different executive and non-executive roles which enabled him to bring a wealth of senior management expertise in the corporate sector to business in the community. He's particularly known for his work on homelessness and poverty, which has involved him in a non-executive directorship in Habitat for Humanity, and a number of other non-executive directorships. Would you please welcome Stephen Howard. Well, Richard, thank you for that. It is a real honor and privilege to be in this amazing space and to participate with this august group that we have in front of us. I've been asked to say just a few words to set the scene on what is the connection, the link, between being a responsible business and the climate change agenda slash crisis. How does that fit together? Uh, as you've heard, I've spent most of my working life in business. I've spent 25 years in the UK. I still sound like this for some reason, but spent most of my working life managing global businesses, uh, both as an executive, chief executive, and as a non-executive director. And so I've seen firsthand the challenges of taking important big ideas like climate change and trying to translate them into practical outcomes in a business with all the short-term pressures that go along with that. I have the privilege now of being chief executive of business in the community, the Prince of Wales Responsible Business Network, and, and anybody who reads the paper know he is somebody who is deeply passionate about this agenda and particularly exercised and actually quite encouraged by what may happen in Paris at the end of this year. The environment, the context within which this conversation is taking place is an uncertain one. Economically, politically, socially, we are in a time of change and maybe even turmoil, both in this country and certainly in my home country and other places as we think about these issues. We're also at a time when business isn't trusted. Big business in particular, financial services, probably more so than many, but it is true of most large institutions and that's quite a change. Interestingly, small businesses are trusted. Uh, just like people don't trust Parliament, but they tend to trust their local politician. Anyway, a message in there, and maybe come back to that. And of course, the other thing, the media is very, very focused, with some good reason, on issues like who's paying what in tax, who's getting paid what bonus, rather than looking at some of the other issues that are also relevant in all of this. Well, the themes that I bring to this agenda are pretty simple, and they uh, were said much more eloquently by the bishop when he was talking. But to me, it's, it comes down to humanity shares a common fate on a crowded planet. We are all in this together. When we talk about sustainability of our nation, of this city, of your business, of the little community in which you are in, it always comes down to the twin principles of social justice and environmental stewardship. They are two sides of the same coin and very connected. There is quite a debate going on right now about what is the purpose of business and how does it tie into that? There are some who would argue that the purpose of business is simply to maximize shareholder value within the extent of the law. And I say, wait a minute now, I've been in business a long time. Surely the purpose of business is also to maximize customer value and community value. That's what creates the virtuous circle. Is the purpose of business to make a profit or is the profit the result of running a good business? 
delivering goods and services that people want. Quite a debate that's happening out there right now. The purpose of business in the community is to help create that fair society and sustainable future. And we, we think about that in a number of ways. I have the uh, privilege and opportunity to talk to an awful lot of business leaders about this agenda. Uh, and I hear a pretty consistent refrain when I push them a bit about how they're doing on this. I hear the, the here's all the things we're doing, many of them anecdotal, but when I say, but have you really addressed the heart of the issue, I get a consistent response. And they tell me one of three things. Either, you know what, it's really hard, and it feels like I'm boiling the ocean, um, and I don't quite know where to start. The second thing I hear is that my intray is overflowing, I'm very busy, which is a bit of a way of saying I probably only get to keep this job for two and a half, three years, and I'm more focused on what happens on my watch than perhaps on the next watch. Now, and, and I find the same thing. If I talk about sustainability to a business leader, they gloss over a little bit. If I talk about legacy, it begins to feel a bit more relevant. But the other message that we hear consistently from companies is, you know what, it's frustrating because my customers don't want to pay for it, and uh, my investors don't ask me about it. So how do we begin to change that dialogue? And that's something we're very focused on. Um, so this, this excuse that we hear from many companies that economic necessity, the recession, the collapsing of oil price, the competition in my market, whatever it happens to be, the economic necessity says, I can't tackle this right now, is one that we really need to confront head on. And one of the ways that I think we can think about doing that is to take people into the National Portrait Gallery, which is free. What a wonderful thing. Stand in front of that amazing portrait of Wilberforce in Parliament in the slavery debate. You could stand in front of that picture for an hour looking at all the subtlety and things. But, but then remember, the debate that was taking place in Parliament wasn't whether slavery was right or wrong. Everybody knew slavery was wrong. The debate was, economically, can we afford to change just now? Does economic necessity say we have to postpone that decision? Seems like a preposterous thing to say and to argue by today's standards. What are the things that we're doing that contribute to that? We are, this week, in, involved in something that we call Responsible Business Week, which is to engage some 8,000 business leaders along the land around what does it mean to be a responsible business? What do you do? And the language that we use is to say being a responsible business isn't about philanthropy. It isn't about giving back. It's about how you make your money as a business. And in the process, how you treat the planet, how you manage complex global supply chains, and we all have them, how you create inclusive, healthy, diverse places of work, but also how you engage in the communities in which you live and work and give you your license to operate around education, employment, enterprise, culture, things that matter to our society and are part of the virtuous circle of a business. The, the core theme is that you create value by living your value. And so the debate and the dialogue that we're having around the climate change agenda is, yes, of course, it's partly about doing the right thing, but it's also about doing the right thing for your business. How do you seize the opportunity out there of building your brand, of managing risk, of finding new business opportunities by grabbing a hold of the circular economy ideas by recognizing that technology is out there ready to vaporize your business unless you think a little bit differently. If you are a DIY supplier, you really have to answer the question to yourself, am I in the business of selling drills or am I in the business of selling holes? And how does that begin to change my economic philosophy and the business practices that I'm going to bring in to all of this business? So when, when we think about measures of success, one of the frustrations that we often have is that we use things like GDP, which of course doesn't measure wealth distribution and it doesn't measure 
pollution an impact on all of that. It certainly doesn't go to the heart of the issue. And so when I talk to business leaders, large and small, about success in communities, I say, look, it isn't about GDP. It isn't about house prices. Those of us that live in London love to talk about house prices um, or share prices. It's about the character of the people that live in our communities, men and women who work hard and dream big, who love their families, who serve their communities, who create opportunities. That's the virtuous circle of success. And if we aren't alive to, and if your business model isn't alive to these climate change issues, you're going to find yourself on the receiving end of all of this. It's a missed business opportunity, and we're working with them to create the practical tools and things that they can do, but also the conversations that they need to have with their investors uh, and with their customers and all of that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stephen. Lawrence Brahm is a global activist, author, pioneer, social enterprise entrepreneur, political economist, international mediator, and lawyer. Try saying that without a breath. Uh, based in Beijing and Lhasa. Uh, he's the founder of the Himalayan Conscious Consensus and the African Consensus Movements. If you look in your booklet, you'll see an extraordinary list of academic achievements and degrees in Mandarin, political science, Asian studies. Uh, he's also the founder and CEO of Shambhala Sarai, one of the Asia's first social enterprises, and he'll be signing his books at the cultural space afterwards. Uh, without further ado, Lawrence Brown. This is a really good room in which to give a confession. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because as an international commercial lawyer in the 80s and 90s, I brought the following companies into China. ExxonMobil, Bayer Chemical, Kodak Chemicals, and Monsanto. From the point of view of an environmental activist, that gives me a criminal record. But I'm going to atone for my sins today and get rid of all that bad karma because in 2002, I moved to Lhasa, Tibet, and began to set up by 2005 one of Asia's first social enterprises. And bringing together Tibetans, we restored a lot of heritage buildings, we created boutique hotels, restaurants, we have four um, empowering communities of disabled nomads who shared in the profit, um, only using local people, and in turn, um, an entire program for the disabled. Everything in the hotels is made by Tibetans with disabilities. In turn, the hotel soon opened four medical clinics. We turned three over to locals, retained one today. We opened up a school and give 150 kids free education. The hotels are all off the grid, solar powered and profitable. The point there is you can have a profitable business and you can give back to the community and you can be a force for transformation. Well, there's a Zen Buddhist saying that if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? So by 2007, started to go out and make a sound and go around South Asia talking to people like Mohammed Yunus, the Bhutanese who were developing uh, gross national happiness. You know what we found? We're not the only ones out there. Lots of people are doing this. They're revitalizing their communities all across the region. 
and not only in the Himalayas but also in Africa, in Europe, because government is dysfunctional and aid doesn't work, and facing the challenges of climate change, they have to mitigate the conditions around them, and they're using small business to do it. So we came up with an economic paradigm, sort of an opposite to the Washington Consensus. We call it the Himalayan Consensus. Three pillars. Protect local identity, culture, who you are, your heritage. Way of life, which in turn, many of the traditional values respect the environment. But second pillar, do it through a business. But that means changing the nature of our financial architecture, which is totally focused on bringing capital to the 1% of the 1% trading derivatives, most of which are in fossil fuel. So we have to get capital to the community, to people, not through austerity. And three, protect the environment, but more so, protecting the environment and all of the innovation, technology, and opportunity in converting from fossil fuels to renewables, efficient energy, insulation, and water conservancy methods is going to be the next business driver for this century. It is an opportunity. And so, why do we call it the Himalayan consensus? Well, the Himalayas, the nations of this region share snow caps which support the following river systems in China, the Yangtze, the Yellow, in Southeast Asia, the Irrawaddy, Mekong, and Salween, in South Asia, the Brahmaputra, Ganges, and Indus. Those glaciers support one-third of humanity. So if those glaciers melt because of global warming, people are not going to have food and water to drink. There's going to be war. War over resources. Just about two months ago, I was in a working group with the Prime Minister of Bhutan and a room full of scientists. And he stood there and he says, the scientists are arguing over the glaciers and the climate change and what's going to happen. I don't want to hear the argument. My glaciers are missing. I don't have them anymore. What do I do? Give me an answer. And that brings me back to China, where I've spent much of my life. In the past two years, I've worked with the Chinese Ministry of Environmental Protection because China is the number one emitter of carbon. 70% of China's energy is coal, enemy number one. The other side of the Himalayas is number three, India. Number three carbon emitter. And of course, the second is the United States, my country, where they don't believe that climate change exists. You know, That's another issue. But we mapped out in China a set of answers, and it doesn't require 12 steps, it requires three big ones. And those three big ones are, first of all, changing the GDP model, what you just talked about. Because all of China's hyper-growth, which has created all this carbon, is based that GDP is going to keep the population happy and create social stability. But it's not creating social stability. You can't breathe the air, and 70% of the water, surface water, is too toxic to drink now. That's going into agriculture. That's causing health problems. If you actually factor the cost of growth, the cost of repairing the planet, repairing people's health, all that goes back to the taxpayer, all of it goes back to enterprises. You don't have growth. You don't have 8% growth, 7%. Maybe you don't even have 2% growth. So changing the paradigm of how we measure economic health is the first thing. The second is infrastructure investment. If you're going to have fixed asset infrastructure investment from things like quantitative easing, which is putting all the money in the capital markets being traded on derivatives of fossil fuels, put it into the conversion of power systems 
from fossil fuels to renewable. The technology exists. It's all there. It exists here in Europe. Go from coal to renewable efficient energy and create jobs through that. Jobs for PhDs, technical people, engineers in blue collar. That can all be done. And the third is credit fiscal policy to drive businesses into doing the right things. We can have a concept of conscientious capital, but you need credit fiscal policy to drive businesses to go into efficient energy systems and to make those systems. And these ideas from far off in the Himalayas or China are also relevant in the United States because I was just in California where permaculture people are trying to come up with solutions at the grassroots, at the community level for the water crisis, which is the same there. So Himalayan consensus, Sierra consensus, it's the same challenge, the same problem, requires the same solutions. But to finish, I just want to say, if we're going to change the economics, we have to change the assumptions, which means changing the values. So I'd like to leave you with a story, a story that comes from Tibet. And I used to tell this uh, in teachings in Zakati Park during the heady days of Occupy Wall Street. It's a story about four animals and a tree. An elephant, a monkey, a rabbit, a bird, and the tree. And the four animals have a fight over who's closest to the tree. And the elephant says, I'm closest because I bathe in the tree's shadow every day. And the monkey goes, no, I'm closest because I eat all the fruit every day. And the rabbit snickers and says, no, I nibble at the root of the tree, so I'm the closest. And the little bird says, no, I'm the one who's closest to the tree. And all the animals laugh. And the little bird explains, because it was me who brought the seed that planted the tree. This story reminds us of the economic theory of the interconnectivity of all things and the power of giving more than taking. And every kid in the Himalayas, even kids who have no education, know this story. The day they teach this story in the curriculum of Harvard Business School is the day we begin to have real change. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Lawrence. Um, to take time out in the middle of an election period for any politician is a difficult time, but it's a mark of Baroness Worthington's commitment to this that she's with us tonight. She's the Shadow DEC Minister in the House of Lords, a member of the Shadow DEFRA team. She's a leading expert on climate change and carbon trading. If you look in her biography, you'll see she's been involved with Operation Raleigh, Friends of the Earth, and setting up the Big Ask campaign. But more latterly, she's moved to the energy industry to try to look at new ways of doing energy with Scottish and Southern Energy and launching sandbag.org.uk and with the Weinberg Foundation on trying to find new and cleaner forms of power. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Brownie Worthington. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the invitation to address you here today. Maybe it's a reflection of the fact that I'm in the House of Lords, not an elected politician that means I can be here. But uh, I am very actively involved in the campaign. Uh, but I'm, my passion is not politics. My passion is environmentalism and solving climate change. And it's for that reason that I was put in the House of Lords. Um, 
I think Ed Miliband was having this crazy moment, but, but he appointed me as a member of the House of Lords because I'd worked on the Climate Change Act uh, that was passed in 2008. And the reason I think that, uh, that that work was acknowledged was because it was a tough fight to get that piece of legislation passed. And it was the world's first example of a country taking on legally binding targets for itself uh, when no other country had done so and committing to really deep reductions in emissions in a legally binding framework by 2050. So, I'm here tonight to just talk a little bit about, I've been asked to speak about how do we influence politics, uh, what's holding back uh, progress and what's holding back a proportionate response to climate change and what can we as citizens do. So I'm going to say a little bit about what's already been done um, and what we're doing now, but also importantly what we should be focusing on next, some ideas about that. So as I mentioned, um, I was involved in passing laws because, and I think Bishop uh, Nick mentioned this earlier, this is a situation where we are dealing with a system that is natural. The physics involved in climate change are, are incontrovertible. It doesn't matter whether we believe in it or not. Uh, this, is a, a, this is going to happen. And in that sense, the politics and the econ economic discussions are, are as nothing really compared to that truth. And we must always, when we're discussing how politics intersects with this problem, rem remember that although economists and very wealthy individuals and the whole uh, legion of people who are, are making money from the current system uh, will defend the status quo and who will use economic arguments to prevent us from changing, the economy is a human construct and a totally wholly owned subsidiary of the natural environment. And if you wanted a, a, a symbol of that, when the hurricane hit uh, the coast of New York, the stock exchange shut down. It, we, we cannot uh, sustain our lives as we know them today in the face of, of, of a runaway climate change. So we have to just hold that fact and know it to be true and then hold our politicians to account because they are the people who can write the laws that can bring about the change. And I saw firsthand how that can be done in the passing of the Climate Change Act. And it involved a huge amount of organization and a lot of passion, a lot of, uh, a lot of thought went into it, but equally it also involved a fair amount of luck. And that's always the case when these uh, moments arrive. It started around about 2000 uh, when it, I've been involved in climate change now for, for nearly 20 years and we've had phases in which there's been momentum and then we've had periods in when, where it's fallen back. And around about 2000, the momentum started building for action on climate change. Some of the science was becoming more clear, um, NGOs were being more outspoken and we were running into a phase where there was a general optimism that we could find a deal, a climate change deal. And since that law has been passed, it's had an amazing effect. We've now seen uh, multiple countries looking at that model and starting to, to take similar action. So as we argued at the time with the Treasury, uh, leadership is about doing what's right and then helping other people to follow you, not sitting on the sidelines and waiting for everyone else to move. So my message, I guess, tonight is that a huge amount has already been achieved, especially in the UK, and we are seeing progress around the world. But there's still a huge uh, hill to climb. This is, a, this is an existential risk, and we need a proportionate response to that, and we're not anywhere close to that. So two, I think there are two things that need to happen next. Um, uh, Bishop Nick also touched on 
some of the tactical skirmishes that are going on around, uh, around fracking um, and around different technology discussions and, and indeed uh, the divestment movement. These are important important campaigns, but they're not strategic. Strate the strategic thing that we need to do is to address two fundamental problems. One is the tragedy of the commons, which is that it isn't possible for any individual or any country or any city to solve this on their own. We need global action. Uh, and that is a challenge. And we heard again some of, the, some of the geopolitical issues that come when you try to tackle this as a global community. We don't have good governance structures. Uh, the UN is, is difficult. It's not, it's not the pure UN that was born out of uh, the post-war period. It's now a very complex place to try and negotiate anything. Uh, but we have uh, Paris, and we will see, I think, in Paris, a deal being crafted and being agreed, partly because we now have leadership in the form of the US. The US has always been very slow to move on climate change, and with Obama in his second term as president, very eager to leave a legacy on this issue, he is showing genuine leadership. And that leadership is unlocking goodwill in China because China has always maintained that they would not act on this unless the US acted too. And now we see the two countries, the two major economic blocs, joining Europe in agreeing that this needs to be done. So the tragedy of the commons is getting this movement. We may hopefully see a breakthrough. Paris won't be the final word. It's most likely to be a very symbolic deal with a lot of details still to be worked out. We are not going to stop at Paris. There will be cops after that, meetings after that, implementation plans. Paris will be the start, not the end, but there is a very good sign that we will achieve a breakthrough there. The second tragedy is the tragedy of the, of the horizon. And this was highlighted recently by the the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, when he said, we live in a world where financial markets and the financial system are applying ever shorter timescales to their decision making. And, and we are sitting here in the beautiful uh, uh, St Paul's Cathedral, right in the heart of the city of London. And the city of London, to steal a, phra a phrase from, uh, from, uh, from Bishop Nick, could be described as slightly unhinged. It has become uh, detached from the real economy, ever dealing in ever more uh, complex and, and obscure forms of wealth generation. But they maintain this uh, illusion of growth, which is it's, it's a figment of imagination, really. And we must get the economy back to reattached to the real, the real world and, and start reinvesting in infrastructure and in a cleaner society. How do we do that? Well, we can have a discussion and there are lots of smart people. In fact, where are all the smart brains today? Many of them are in the city of London because uh, that, has been, that has been the thing that's, that has been drawing people in from universities over my experience in my lifetime. The smartest people all end up working within probably a few miles of here. Um, but if they're asked and if they're tasked by politicians with solving this, they will be able to come up with solutions. And I was heartened to hear um, uh, Lawrence mention some of the ideas that I'm here being discussed now in, in a number of places, including the use of quantitative easing to green our economy, including the use of, of different fiscal uh, policies to try and ensure that we can collect revenues from the people who are causing the damage and spend it on the solutions to the challenge. Now, St Paul's is an incredibly fitting place to be having this discussion, not only because it's uh, 
a wonderfully spiritually um, stimulating environment. But it and its location in the city of London is is hugely important. If the UK has anything it can do globally, it's to use its knowledge of the financial sector and the people located in London to help solve this crisis. But there's a third reason it's important, and that's because it was built on the back of a coal levy. It was The coal levy was passed by, a, a piece of legislation was passed to levy a fee on coal being brought into the city of London, and it was that levy that built this wonderful, wonderful, lasting uh, monument. I'm not saying that this is a Labour commitment to introducing a coal tax at all. Please don't quote me on that. But what I'm saying is that when there are times of crises, after the Great Fire of London, when we needed to rebuild our, our community, people with vision introduced fiscal policies to enable us to build places like this. We need that kind of political leadership on this issue. We need that kind of thinking. And we need to deploy all of the tools we have to make this happen. Now, that will happen, I'm sure, but whether it happens fast enough is entirely down to us. And this is where I think uh, I want to end, which is to say that as citizens, please don't ever consider yourselves consumers. I agree. I think the age of measuring ourselves as consumers should end. We are citizens and we can act. We live in a democracy. This is a great uh, facet of our life. We should use it. We have an election coming. Ask everybody. Ask your candidate. What are you doing about climate change? What will you do about climate change? And engage as citizens. Demand new laws. Ask for new taxes. Make your politicians do what's right. We have time to solve this. We can do it. The human mind is probably the most efficient biomass-powered machine we have uh, for solving this problem. Every day I encounter more and more people joining the fight on the side of the good, the people who are trying to solve this. Uh, be one of those people, join, join a network, join a green group, get engaged, and it is possible to solve this. We've done a lot already, but we as the UK, UK can do even more, and I'm looking forward to hopefully playing a part in that after May the 7th. Thank you. Okay, our, our speakers are all wonderful and they've been terrifically self-restrained in order to give us a little bit of time for questions from the floor. I'm going to be absolutely ruthless and cut you off if you start making a speech. Um, there are a couple of roving mics. There's one here at the front and there's one somewhere at the back. So I'm going to get a couple of hands, uh, please, so that um, we'll get two or three questions at a time, and then we won't ask everybody to answer everything, so we can get as many comments in as well. And you will have time to talk to speakers during the cultural and uh, refreshments session afterwards. But uh, if the mic at the back could go to that hand there, please. And is there somebody here in the front half who'd like to ask a question? If we could go to this gentleman here. Thank you. Starting at the back, then. Yes, hello, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that what makes me feel hopeful is coming away feeling empowered. And I suppose I would just like to come away today feeling empowered that we've actually done something here this evening. Okay. So I'm a member of the Church of England. I'm, I'm a member of a local church. I would like to see my church, the Church of England, um, divest from coal. And I know that you've all talked about divestment as just okay, a tactic. I've, I've 
I've got the point about okay. that, and I'm sure Bishop Nick will refer to it. I, ju I just want to say that it's not a tactic. This is an important yeah. practical step. So please, can you make a commitment to yeah. do so? Thank you. Thank you. Clark, I think I'm one of the slightly unhinged coming from the financial sector, so I'm slightly cautious. My point is, please do not underestimate what the financial sector is doing. Things like the United Nations Principles Response and Investment, the Montreal Carbon Pledge. As citizens, picking up Baroness's point, we are citizen savers. We give our assets to our savings to asset owners. They give it to investment managers and they invest. So I think it is, it is helpful to paint a picture of a long-term financial saving system, which in parts is supporting the objectives of the panel. Okay, I'm going to ask Bishop Nick to respond to the first point, and, and Stephen Lawrence O'Brien to respond to the second. Uh, there's been uh, a review of ethical investments uh, in the Church of England's control that will come to General Senate in July. And I can't tell you that that's what it's going to do, but uh, there's a huge discussion about how, how we use the assets that we have to support the beliefs and values that we have. And I think that's the key bit of actually using this stuff in a way that reflects what we now believe and what our values are in relation to the impact of climate change and our responsibility in the present day. Thank you, Nick. So watch this space. What are we doing in business? Uh, any of the three of you? There is quite a bit going on. There are some encouraging things, and in part it's because financial institutions see the business case for behaving that way. And so whether it's thinking around accounting for sustainability, so how do we measure and the, the impact of natural resources, where does social finance come into play, and where are the opportunities to invest there. And so to the extent that we can unlock the creative minds in the city to both create the capital flow and the business opportunity to behave that way, uh, the lemmings will follow. Can I, as I, I didn't mean to say everybody in the city is unhinged, but the, the, but the financial world has become slightly detached from, um, from real investment. And not so much in, in, Asian, in Asian markets, actually. That seems to be more connected to infrastructure. But in, in, anyway, but my, 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 my point was really that it, we can't expect the, sec, the financial services or the financial industries to just decide to do this voluntarily. It, they have to be, um, this has to be done in conjunction with other countries. And we created the G20 specifically to respond to the financial crisis. We can create a similar grouping of countries to respond to the climate crisis through financial measures. And that's the kind of proportionate response we need to see from our leaders now, is that this is akin and even greater than the financial crisis. We need to see a response of of similar magnitude, and we will be able to solve this because we're clever. Another question at the back, then, please. And somebody at the front, there's a lady there. Yes. Thank you. With the election approaching, can I ask the people on the panel to comment on their views as to whether the Green Party um, is working in a way that they think is consistent with their own views, uh, and whether that's a good place to put a vote? Certainly ask whether there'll be a to answer is another question, but let's hear the other question first. Yeah, um, we've talked a lot about systems at a sort of political or a business level. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on individual empowerment. So something to take away for the people here, our advice on you, what, what we can do as individuals. What can we as individuals do? Okay, um, who would like to comment on the Green Party agenda? Lawrence. I'll comment not because I know about your politics here, but I've joined uh, Jill Stein's campaign in the U.S. who is running for president from the Green Party. 
And the reason why we're doing that is because neither of our parties, Republican or Democrat, are sincerely addressing the climate change point of view from the point of view of driving the financial markets to do something. It's all been about quantitative easing that's put capital into commodities like fossil fuels or junk stocks and Ponzi schemes like Facebook. To be very frank, nothing has gone into infrastructure. I just came on a flight from New York a few days ago, our infrastructure in America is hopefully outdated and all fossil fuel driven and coal driven. And it really requires a policy that's going to see youth innovation technology as an opportunity for the capital markets, for finance. And I want to rest the derivative traders, let them rest assured one day the price of water will be more expensive than oil. And that's going to be something that they're going to have to invest in and invest in the systems to retain it. Member of the House of Lords should comment. <laughs> I would say this, wouldn't I? But um, just think back to when we had um, a George Bush versus Al Gore. Ralph Nader stood, he split the left, we got Bush. Thank you, Brownie. I'm, I'm going to say something I never thought I would hear myself say, but this is where the country could learn something from the General Synod of the Church of England. <laughs> and that is because we have a thing called single transferable vote where you can vote for minorities and still your vote then goes on to others rather than this antiquated first-past-the-post system that we're using here. There's not much that we can learn from the church, but that is at least one thing. I'm going to ask uh, the bishop or Stephen if you'd like to comment to the question about what can we do as individuals. Actually, I was going to say something about the importance of um, uh, empowerment. Nothing breeds success like success. Um, the doing things locally makes a big difference. I'm really taken by the living churchyards I've come across in my diocese and the way in which they've generated a conversation in a community, not just church, but with the school, with the wider community. So 20 years ago, and just occasionally now, the bishop got lots of letters saying, dear bishop, they don't look after the church like they used to, it's not proper. Now people are really proud of the way in which they've created a diverse, ecologically diverse uh, place, which has been enormously successful at getting people to think about the responsibilities. Those things are really helpful in giving us a sense of there are things we can do that make a difference. Just a, a quick word, I suppose, on what individuals can do. It does sometimes feel like the problem is so huge that you need to boil the ocean and therefore what can my behavior matter? But it does. So two things that I think all of us need to do. First of all, think about how we behave, what we do, how we travel, uh, what we say, what we wear. But also think about how we spend, how we vote with our spending. Are you in buying products from companies that believe what you believe on this agenda? Are they thinking about how they come to grips with their own carbon footprints, whatever kind of industry they're in? Uh, if you're not getting the right kind of information to make an informed decision, ask for it. And that will get investors to begin to ask for it as well, and that will kind of create a more transparent opportunity for people to play. Right, there's a hand right at the very back there, and this gentleman here in the front. Yes, please, madam. Um, my question follows on from the one we just had. Um, as a church, um, it's important to support poorer people um, on lower incomes. How do you feel that with individual choices, we can empower those on lower incomes to make choices which are ecological, such as buying products which are environmentally friendly, which often have a higher price tag. Installing solar panels is quite expensive. How can we encourage those on lower incomes? Thank you. And you, sir? Magna Carta was about um, holding those in power to be accountable. How do we measure the accountability of those who are in power over us? 
Okay, I'm, I'm wondering whether uh, Brownie or Lawrence would like to go to the first question about empowering of the poor, because I know both of you have been working in that area. Lawrence? First of all, I want to comment on the power of the consumer, picking up on what you said, because I talk about this in my book. You have conscientious capital is driving corporations to make the right decisions, but the power is actually with us in terms of, of, of conscientious consumption as opposed to conspicuous consumption, which is a neoclassic idea. And I'll give you one example of this, and that is the Greenpeace campaign against Mattel. Mattel was using wrappers for their Barbie dolls that were coming from Sumatra uh, rainforests, which were being deforested and uh, wiping out the Sumatran tiger. And so they did a campaign where basically they had Barbie uh, with a chainsaw and Ken, the boyfriend, was going to break up. And it was done by social media youth flooding the mailboxes of Mattel. In the end of the day, Mattel had to change. They had to find another source for their paper or use recycled paper. So we all had that power, and especially with social media, youth activists organizing and approaching the companies on this. And, and really, then you can have change, and every ordinary citizen can participate in this. It's our decision. We have the power to vote with our money. Thank you. Uh, Brian. Um, yeah, I, um, I don't disagree, but I, I think I would like to see more highly leveraged interventions, which mean that it's not just Mattel that changes, but everybody changes. So um, passing laws actually is a really good way of doing that, whether they're at a national level uh, or indeed international level. So uh, I, I, would, I would say that the, uh, for, for, the, for trying to protect the poorest in our society, we have to pass laws that are equitable, that spread the the burden of paying for this uh, progressively. So if we're consuming more, we pay more. And if we're consuming less, we, or we're in the, the unfortunate situation that we need assistance, that there's a welfare state that looks after them. That, that seems to me fundamental to this. And it, you know, one of the things that's, that's causing so much problem in the politics of all of this is that we have too far, far too great a differential between the richest and the poorest. And that's politically a problem and we need to address that as we also tackle climate change. But progressive taxation can help with that um, and as to how we keep our uh, uh, elected people accountable uh, well we have an election coming up for democracy is quite good for that what do we do about Russia I really don't know <laughs> um, and ultimately I think that you know that sounds glib but we are lucky that we live in a country which has actually got a high degree of accountability when when all things uh, come to a to a head, I fear it's the countries which don't have democracy that may be the slowest to change and we will need to think very hard about what leverage we have to make them change. Nick. The Trussell Trust uh, 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 issued a report which said um, the growth in food banks has slowed uh, but is, is the number of people that they're feeding is rising. Uh, and um, most food banks now are doing more than food because they recognise that there's a, a holistic issue here. So, so that sense in which we, we, le we need to learn differently, to, to live differently. Uh, and, and actually with the poor, the, we, we need to support them and sustain them, but we also need to give them the, the, the opportunities of living in, in, in the kind of way the, the first of these questions was, was implying that actually does address the sustainability issues. 
and how you hold power to account. One of the things I've really enjoyed about the general election are the community meetings that I've been to um, and the liveliness of those conversations and politicians being held to account by a group of people. Some of them have been completely nuts, all of them have been absolutely riveting. Uh, and um, citizens groups like London Citizens, uh, 38 degrees, I think there's a huge amount there which uh, extends that sort of um, social media use that Lawrence talked about in, in a way that is very engaged, face-to-face, -face, local people working together to build agendas about what they want addressing. In my misspent youth running rock bands, I used to find the difficulty of knowing the precise moment to leave the stage when the audience still wanted more. I can see that there are hands, and I know you want to hold these in power to account. You may be able to do that over a glass of wine, but I'm going to bring the Q&A to a, a close at this point and just ask each of our panel standing where they are to save time from going to, the, to stand up and give us one minute uh, we'll go from, uh, start with ladies first, from Bryony and work our way up to the bishops in the last position, which is clearly where they should be. Um, one minute on what they would like us to take away from tonight. Okay, well, I, I'm, thank you again for the opportunity to, to come here tonight, not only to, to, to address you, but also to listen to these fantastically stimulating speeches. It's been, I've, I'm leaving feeling empowered, so I hope you are too. Um, my one minute. All, all I would say, I suppose, is uh, it does feel like a huge issue and it feels very difficult to know how you get a purchase on it. But uh, please go away tonight knowing that change is happening already. Um, it, it isn't true that this is just people are just waking up now. We've been in the UK supporting renewable energy since 1990. 1990 was the year I went to university. I didn't have a mobile phone. Nobody used laptops. Computers, were, you know, they were in a room somewhere. We had to go and visit them. Uh, the world has changed phenomenally in the last uh, 25 years. And, uh, and in that period, we have seen these technologies, renewable technologies, move from a, a sort of niche thing to a big industry. And I get lobbied now as a shadow minister as much by the renewables industry as I do by uh, the fossil fuel industries. So the change is coming. Um, and, and we have another 25 years before we're likely to completely use up the so-called safe carbon budget, global carbon budget. So let's, let's take... Let's take um, hope from the fact that the last 25 years has seen a massive revolution, the digital revolution, and let's make the next 25 years all about the clean energy revolution. And we can do it. There's no doubt in my mind we can do this. Um, we need to just work together and think smart. And, and as you go about your daily life, think... If anything irks you or you think, I, this doesn't make sense, think about which law you would change to make that thing go away and then lobby your politicians to pass that law. That's what they're there for. That's what they can do. Thank you. I'll ask you to think counterintuitively. When you hear it on the news or somebody says this is the way it is, ask yourself whether it is or not. And what I mean by that is we talk about all the discussions that are happening at the national level. In my country, we have an oligarchy of the fossil fuel industry. Change is not happening at the top. Our Congress doesn't even believe that climate change is a fact of life. However, what I get inspiration from is the young people and communities. Because whether it's in the Himalayas, Nepal, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in California, it's happening at the local level, and that means you are empowered. Whether it's changing the light bulbs in your house 
to conser conservation light bulbs or solar panels on your house, communities, uh, community by community in Rwanda, they have reduced fossil fuels to less than 50% of the total energy needs of that country. And that is by going to diversified, decentralized power. It's being done at the community level, and a lot of it's being driven by women and women's groups. And I see that all over. And of course, the proposals we're preparing now for Governor Brown of California that's facing a huge water crisis are coming from the community level. They're coming from permaculture people, transition towns of America. It's all starting with the small. People who have pioneered this stuff in their backyards have gotten an entire community behind it and then a town. And so never underestimate the power of a single idea because it can be transformational and take you in all kinds of directions and ultimately change state policy. So you're the power. Go do it. Get my timer. See how much I can squeeze in in one minute. Some, some profound thoughts there. Um, get started. Take action. Don't confuse simple with simplistic. Use less stuff and enjoy life more. And the fourth is remember Dante in his epic poem who said the darkest places in hell are as reserved for those who don't take action in times of crisis. The, pr the pressure's mounted as though it's gone along the road, hasn't it? I, I'm not sure I'm going to come up with the, with, with the money, the, with one minute that says, yeah, that's, that's the thing to do. But I, I've really enjoyed the imagination, the creativity, the engagement of the discussion tonight. Uh, and actually, I've enjoyed the sense of collaboration between people of different perspectives and the way we can do this together. I'm really struck that as the bishop of a diocese in which a large proportion of elderly people live, Dorset has the largest proportion of retired people of any region in Europe. Um, since taking on responsibility for this issue, I keep engaging with young people. So the sort of, sort of thing Lawrence said, it's been very much my experience that people are passionate about this. What I want you to leave you with is the picture before this of St George and the Dragon. Um, I am really puzzled about how, easy, how difficult it is to identify the problem. What's the sin? Lawrence, when you were in China for Exxon and Monsanto, what was it you were doing wrong? And I think that's, because your, your life experience is actually very, that, that's something we're all grappling with. That's why the story had such resonance. Because if we can identify that, then there's, it becomes easier to identify how to turn away from it, both individually and corporately. So, of course, what the bishop wants to, you to do, go away with, is to think about what is it that we need to repent from and turn towards, and to put it positively, what is it we want to pray for? Because that will tell us where our heart is and will help to empower us and help us to find God's future. This is church, after all, so I'm supposed to conclude with the notices. Ne next week's services will be as usual, but on your seat you will find a flyer of the next event, uh, which is on May the 7th, uh, beyond Election Day, Power, Money, Government and Responsibility. No, sorry, that's Wednesday the 29th, looking... So that's, 
um, I'll start that again. It's taking place next week, Wednesday 29th, looking forward to what happens beyond the election of May the 7th and how do we get politics and business working for the common good. Do pick up the flyer, do publicise it and make sure you book uh, at the address given. Uh, secondly, um, We've managed to persuade the cathedral to allow us to stay beyond nine o'clock, which is when normally you turn into a pumpkin. So we have the best part of an hour up until about 9.15 to enjoy the extraordinary uh, displays, which you'll find on the back few pages of your booklet and a wonderful map to find your way around there. There's also some uh, wine and uh, soft drinks and refreshments to, to, do, to do that. So, two, please, uh, that's a very important part of the evening, and it will also be a chance for you to engage with our speakers, uh, some of whom I know can stay for some of the, some of the time. Uh, and don't forget Barbara's comments, because it is church, about the retiring collection. Um, but I, I must end with a huge thank you to Barbara Redpath and to the staff from St. Paul's Institute, to those who've been going around with roving microphones, those who've been switching it off so you don't get the sort of comments coming from the other side of my rumblings in my tummy or whatever, uh, for the people who put up the, the um, PowerPoint at the last minute. It's been an extraordinary evening. It, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, what do you get if you put a bishop, a businessman, a lawyer, and a member of the House of Lords all together in a crypt? <laughs> I wish I had a punchline for it. <laughs> but I, I would, well, I've got down here an extraordinary evening, actually, Bishop. Um, if you do see a purple shirt, you should hear something about... For, the two things you have to let a bishop do is to give us forgiveness of sins and a blessing. We've had a confession. We've recognized all of our responsibility for the situation we're in. And I think we've understood something about what we have to go and do as a mark of repentance. And I'm not going to ask the bishop to give us his blessing because I think all four of them have given us a blessing by their presence tonight. So will you please thank uh, Bryony, Lawrence, Stephen and Bishop Nick. Thank you very much.